Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hi, Claire. How are you today? Good. I'm enjoying this um, very beautiful but definitely chilly autumn morning. Yeah, it feels like we it's suddenly upon us that in that lovely crossover period, big golden light and a little coolness to the air, all that kind of autumnal gathering in of fruit and in my house, lots of preserving pots going, keeping the pears and the apples and all those sorts of things, trying to save the last of the season. I love this time of year. That's definitely an autumn smell in, in our house when the jam pan goes on. This month, coming up in a couple of weeks, we've got our own program on at Push the Boat Out, Edinburgh's International Poetry Festival happening at Summer Hall. A group of our participants are going to be reading and performing the work that was made right across all our groups in response to Edwin Morgan's poem at 80, which encourages us to push the boat out. It says, unknown is best. And also John Glenday's beautiful poem. I think it's actually called The Great Silence, but it's untitled in his new collection, which reminds us that there's never a moment to lose. So come and see us, come and join us for that program on the afternoon of the 15th of October at Summer Hall. And also that program is going to include our new macker, Kathleen Jamie. We're going to be looking at one of her poems as part of this podcast. We love her work, don't we, Claire? Yeah, I think there's something really calming and slow-paced and lovely about a lot of her writing which it's really sunk in nature a lot not all of it she writes lots of different things but the ones that I particularly love are the ones that have a really strong sense of place or nature in them and loads to talk about loads to think about and of course you've um, had to keep a secret on that one (laughs) haven't you (laughs) yeah well I was really lucky to be part of the panel that helped select our macker for Scotland this time round it was not an easy process I cannot say very much more but we're delighted to have chosen Kathleen she's Um, as you say her work is really pretty universal in the sense that lots of people can kind of understand it and relate to it it's deceptively simple it's something I often say about John Glenday's work too in the sense that it, it isn't simple at all the more you dig the more there is there but she often as you say writes about the environment and these times we feel it's you know it's really important that we are using poetry as a vehicle to help us think about and engage with other subjects so that's another reason we're delighted to have her as our macker um so today we're lucky enough to have one of her poems thank you kathleen to talk about as part of this podcast we're going to be looking at crossing the loch which includes a natural phenomenon which is one of my favorites as well and the beautiful story called Histogram by Catherine McFarland. Do you want to get us started, Claire? Sure, yeah. Histogram by Catherine McFarland. She felt each slap, did not flinch at the sharp sting across her cheek as spray spiralled with each upward beat of the boat into oncoming waves. It felt almost natural now, the shifting of weight from side to side a gentle sway to find her centre of gravity, like lifting a baby from hip to hip, switching it over, over and over. Rhythmic rocking, weak sun, a halo on her hair, almost enough to let her close her eyes, lift her face to the sky, relax. But white-knuckled, tight-lipped, she dared not tear her grip from the handrail or her eyes from the grey-green sea boiling below. Her cheeks 
long numbed by needles of knife-sharp wind, burned with a rosy glow, belied the cold. It was not the wind or the wet, but the nip of salt water drying on skin that finally made her turn, sink back to her seat, head throbbing with the thrum of the engine. She studied the sky, had spent the day searching for signs. This morning's moon, full round and silver, had lifted her, saw her reach for her camera to catch moon shadows spreading from trees until the lunar halo brought her grandmother's voice. There's a change coming, little one. Stormy weather ahead. She had stopped twice on the way to the pier, caught short by signs. First seen, a black cat. Her mother would have said, bad luck, and shivered. But she knew the sailors would have seen safe passage as they let it pass. Today, she would be a sailor. Second sight was the birds. There was no need to stop, but she wanted to count again. Be sure it was seven. Watch them preen as she wondered which secret she'd never share. The unexpected emptiness of the key was her, alone, forever, until missed messages confirmed a later departure. Skimming stones into a seemingly endless sea, she had been sure that there would be strength in solitude. But a solitary hour was a long time to see signs of alone. One gull, bobbing aimlessly, silhouette of a far distant ship, silent on the barely there horizon. A magpie, noisy in the tree behind her, his harsh, ascending alarm call sign of a fox nearby. She was still whispering, good morrow, as the boat crew arrived. The white foam of the wake weaving through dark seas was surely a sign. But was this a silvered path to a brighter future, or a rope that bound her back to the mainland, back to before? The sunrise was behind them, a soft, rosy glow, too benign to scream warning, too pale for photographs, lacking a point of reference. She turned instead to the horizon, hoped for better shots to come, visual interest, a sense of perspective. Seabirds shrieked as they circled closer, hurling guttural profanities. She gathered in the missing children, fingers outstretched as if to cover ears that were not here to hear the screaming, not this time. And she saw the woman watching her gathering air with empty fingers. So she smiled, and it was returned. A sign? She saw seals, mothers outstretched fearlessly on an outcrop, young ones playing like puppies at the sea edge. And she watched them play, unaware she was smiling. She remembered the stories her grandmother had told, the selkies who shed their seal skin, danced in the moonlight on sheltered beaches, slipped back to the sea before sunrise. She wondered if maybe she shared selkie blood, then caught herself, unclipped the lens cap, 
and caught them, barely time to adjust the focus before they slid out of frame. Should we stop there for a minute? Yeah. Such beautiful language. You know, it's almost poetic. And I know Catherine is also a poet. And I think you can really hear it in her descriptions and the kind of silkiness of the language. And it's beautifully weighted when you're reading it aloud. Like the breaths are in the right place to make it easy to read. And the language sort of flows together. There's nothing that jolts or jars as you're reading it aloud. But let's talk about her. Who is she and what's she doing on the boat? I mean, she's obviously a photographer. And she's obviously a character who has some sort of penchant for reading the signs or looks for the signs or feels moved or guided by things that she considers hints at what's to come. I wonder if that's just part of being a photographer. You know, that you're always looking at things both through a frame, like what it would look like, you know, because often we can't see what a picture will look like because we're looking at the whole thing rather than a portion of it. So I think one of the skills of a photographer has got to be honing in and looking at one thing. But I wonder if, you know, so you're always almost reading the future into what you're looking at in terms of what one part of it might look like on its own or and whether it has relevance. You know, as a poet, you would choose a subject or a subject might come to you but the reason you're writing about it is because it interests you but also there's something about it obviously that you think will interest your reader and I wonder if that's part of being a photographer too is that you know you're not just looking you've got someone else in mind but I wonder which way round it comes though does she see those signs because she is a photographer or is she a photographer because she sees those signs you know and is it something in her makeup and the way she's been brought up. I mean, those references to her grandmother really make me feel like there's some connection in the way that she responds and reacts to things round about her that she attributes back to her grandmother. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, I was never allowed a black cat growing up because they're bad luck in Iran. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, me being me, the sassy teenager that I was, as soon as I left home, what did I get? But a black cat when I was in law school in my early 20s. And my dad has just said, oh, my God, why would you get a black cat? How can I come and visit you? Stay in a house with a thing that is, by definition, bad luck. But I almost wanted to kind of overcome it. You know, I thought, well, no, and not only that, I'm going to prove that this is a kind of good luck charm, you know, for you get to choose your luck rather than believing in that. But it strikes me that she's had a similar kind of experience and she's trying to turn it by thinking, no, but other people think it's a good omen. And I think as well, you know, you choose to read the signs the way you want to and each culture has its own boundary stories to tell. But what is bad luck in one culture is good luck in another. I mean, it always reminds me of the first time that Mark came back from a trip to Japan and had been slightly horrified and mortified by the fact that sniffing in Japan is considered culturally the correct thing to do and you would never blow your nose because that was just so disgusting. And he's a real hay fever sufferer and he was there in blossom season. So he had had a really, really hard time adjusting to that requirement that he sniff loudly, knowing that had he done that <laughs> in Scotland, it would not have been well received, particularly by me. <laughs> How many times as mothers did we say, oh, for goodness sake, get a tissue, stop sniffing. Exactly, exactly. So it kind of reminded me of that, you know, her mother thinks the cat's bad luck, but the sailors would have seen it as safe passage. I wonder too, if it's the same thing we were just talking about with photographer. I wonder if part of the signs you see are because you're looking to see them. You know, if you think of things being an omen, 
there's a part of your brain that must be looking for that omen. Otherwise it would miss it, I think, unless it's something as obvious as smashing a mirror. But, you know, we're looking for confirmation, some kind of external force to tell us what we think we already know. I believe that rather than that there is, you know, some kind of thing out there trying to warn us, which is, you know, flies in the face of lots of my family's stories about people appearing to them in dreams and things. But yeah, I think your brain is looking for that kind of confirmation of something it already suspects might be the case. So in this story, for example, I think there's a part of her brain that is worried about this journey because of the weather. And the others that are more rational part of her brain is going, no, no, but the sailors think, you know, and it's actually those two things are just a reflection of what's going on anyway. I think that changes your need to find the signs to support your particular position that you're taking on the particular outcome you want varies. And I think when you're more vulnerable, you do seek out those signs. You do want that confirmation. You know, you do want something to tell you it'll be all right. But when you're feeling more robust, perhaps your brain is just in a mood where it doesn't just register any of those signs. It doesn't see anything because it doesn't need to. The one thing that I still stick to, though, is I don't like to jinx things. So, you know, I don't like to say, oh, that's going really well, which is actually just an articulation of the, the measure of doubt still in my brain that's still worrying that it isn't really going very well or it could all still go terribly wrong, whatever it is. So that's the one thing that I don't like to say out loud until it's finished. I don't like to say, oh, that's going well, you'll be fine, because I, I worry that saying it out loud somehow will make it not be true. And I think that's particularly true of things going well. You know, I, I don't have the same sense about if I say I'm worried that this is going to fail, that that'll cause it to fail. No, I don't. Yeah, not at all. So I think it's a certain humility or a feeling that you don't want to be arrogant. If you're saying, I've done this well, or this is going well, or my child's going well, it almost feels there's a discomfort in saying that, I think, that comes from humility. And I think it's related to that. Because I, I never worry that if I say, this is bound to go badly, that I'll jinx it that way. Okay, but back to the story, because this woman is obviously, you know, really into her photography, but we have no idea what else is happening with her. Well, we'll read on and see if we've got more to hang on to yeah. with her. Okay. Lunch was an island, a break in the journey on a different island between the one she had left and the one she was heading towards. Less than an hour in a place she had not been to since childhood haunted by ghosts of bygone summers and the guilt of this childhood summer not shared. Half-remembered and unchanged, surely a good sign. Some things stay certain, stay sure, stay true. Except the conversation with lunch was cornered by a stranger's misery, an uncanny echo. Did this sign cancel out the other sign? Uncomfortable, she excused herself and sat by the jetty, facing back the way she had come, sharing her sandwich with a white dog that seemed to belong to no one. Back on the boat and past the shelter of the islands, the realization came with such a suddenness that it tore a sound from her. Self-mocking screech of laughter, as guttural as the gulls, drowned by the thud of the first real Atlantic breaker. She turned face drawn with salt nip and self-regret, head throbbing with the thrum of the engine, accepting there were no signs. This break from life between the old life and the new, this short, organized, grown-up trip would teach shutter speeds, apertures and histograms, practical skills that would let her adjust the tonal values of her own images, 
teach her which filter to apply when the light changed. She would remove the element of chance from her photographs, put herself back in control. She would not see signs and shafts of sunlight. Instead, she would simply adjust the histogram until the luminance levels were exactly as she wanted them. She was so busy not looking for signs as they sailed into the bay that she almost missed the sunburst through the cloud, the rainbow over the headland, the two birds on the roof of the harbour master's house. She almost missed the hand outstretched as she leapt for the jetty, almost missed the lightning of shoulders as she laid down her bags. Okay, so she's obviously on a photography trip without her kids, because there is a reference earlier about feeling guilty about not having her children with her. Those missing children, her children? I thought so. Did you not? Well, I wondered if they were children from Summer's past. Well, for me, it was like, well, obviously, we, we all project ourselves into stories. I was thinking, you know, and having spent some time on Ling this summer without my children, there is a part of you that feels pretty guilty for not having taken them. But sometimes you just need those spaces to do the work that you need to do or whatever. So I assumed it was her feeling bad that they weren't with her. But you're right. The discussion of the island break makes me think that maybe there are ghosts of children that she, the guilt of this childhood summer not shared. One thing I've really noticed in this story is the silence in it, you know, because there is, there's the thrum of the engine, which, you know, is a real like kind of undertone or kind of hum, but there's almost no other sound. There's some gulls chattering, but nobody speaks and they obviously are speaking, but we don't hear it. And for me, that really reflects the idea of photography. You know, you get a picture of something. Somehow the story for me reflects that idea that you get a picture of something, but you can't really hear it. And somehow the thrum of the engine is the white noise that covers it all up. And even the animals, the fox and the dog, are all quite quiet. Mm. I mean, the only real sound is that her own self-mocking screech of laughter. That's the only sound that breaks the silence for me. But it does, it feels like it formally reflects the subject, which is really nice. And then she obviously has had a moment, right? We don't know what the moment is. What do you think it was? don't know. This has been bugging me since I first read this. <laughs> We'd love to know what you all think that the thing yeah. is. What's the moment that this, the sudden realization comes with a suddenness that makes her laugh? Um, because suddenly after that, she stops looking for the signs. And so that maybe reflects what we were talking about earlier, Claire, that at some point when you feel more robust or you're more sure of yourself, you stop looking for the outward world to confirm whatever it is you feel in the inside. I mean, I wondered if there was a fear or we know there's guilt, worry about going back to this place. And, you know, once she's gone back and sort of almost conquered that demon, it disappears and she realizes she's been worrying about nothing or it's not as bad as she thought or something along those lines. You know, sometimes when you, you're dreading something or you're worrying about something and then you do it. I remember that from my days in as a court lawyer, you know, there'd be particular cases that you were more worried about than others. And you'd, you know, have a, re a restless night tossing and turning, worrying about the arguments that you'd be making. And it was rarely as stressful or scary or awful as you'd built it up to be in your mind. And I wonder if there's an element of this about her experience, something she's built up and not looked forward to, or maybe being anxious about going on a course on her own. Or maybe being anxious about having to talk to other people. I mean, I think that would be the thing that would, I wouldn't really want to spend time away from my family only to have to engage with strangers around a subject. You know, they obviously all have something in common because they're interested in it, but the ability to walk away from it, the idea that she could 
turn her back on something like that and think, okay, no, I'm contained. I think would give me power thinking, okay, now I don't have to, you know, I'm here for one thing. I don't have to be a part of another that I didn't necessarily sign up to. So for me, that would be a good moment. But I think it's something bigger. She's had a realization of some kind. I think there's something around that section about control, putting herself back in control. She would adjust the tonal values of her own images. She would remove the element of chance, put herself back in control. Now, I know it's about the photographs and what she's going to learn. But, you know, if as you say, it feels like a bigger thing. Actually, there's a sadness in that for me that almost reflects the way that we grow up and stop looking for, you know, I know we've just been talking about looking for outward signs as a a lack of strength, but there is something too about, you know, as we grow up, letting less of the world in, you know, needing to be able to control things, control all the variables, you know, and we might be willing to let one or two things be unknown, but largely when we set out every morning, most of the variables are controlled for, or we know we have the power to adjust them. So if it's about weather, or if it's about where we're going on holiday, or if it's all those sorts of things, there are very few people who kind of go and see how the day gets on. Even when you go a walk, you often have a route, you know, a plan, and you have a general sense of when you'll be back. There's a little sadness in that because we get to be adults and have to think like that. And here there's a, there's a tinge of sadness in that when she's talking about her, her images, that she she's in control of them, that she'll stop looking for the chance in them. And I don't, I don't think that's positive. I think because actually that the, the chance is the magic. It's the being willing to try something. It's being willing to go with something. I think that's true of good writing too. It's very rare that when well, poetry that a poet will sit down to write a particular poem without taking any risks along the way. It doesn't seem obvious. I remember Don Patterson saying someone had said to him, for example, hey, I've got a good idea for a poem for you. And he said, well, if you've had the idea, it's not a good poem. If you've already thought of it, you won't be surprised by the poem. You know, the whole point of a poem is to surprise me and you. So if you're bringing me your idea, neither of us is going to be surprised by it. So I won't bother, don't bother telling me. I remember being surprised by that, but thinking, yeah, the, the thing that's interesting in writing is a surprise. And I, it must be true in photography too. You must be, you know, something about while you're taking the images must surprise you or else why would you do it? It's not interesting. Although for me, there's a sense of freedom that comes from her being in control, the sense of her being able to exert her own choices. And I feel that most in that final paragraph where she stops looking for signs because she doesn't need them anymore. But she misses the rainbow. (laughs) Yeah, but it's her choice. Whereas before she was anxiously scanning, looking for any sign, she can decide to have a second where she just is herself. And then I feel like she will turn outwards and start looking again in her own good time. But she's got control back now to make that choice. And she almost misses the hand outstretched as she leaps for the jetty. That for me is quite hopeful. She doesn't need anyone else's hand to get her safely onto the jetty. Whereas before she would have been anxiously reaching out to need the help and she can do it on her own now. She's able to do it. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think it's a swing from one to the other and surely there's somewhere in the middle if we're right about her. I'm not sure that when you put it into an artistic form that it works, but certainly in a personal form, it's better to feel comfortable and have your lightning of your shoulders is a lovely image that she leaves us with. I think this is such a good connection with the poem, actually, because my sense of the poem, and you can all tell us what you think, is that it's certainly one direction of our pendulum that we've been talking about. Okay, well, while I have a read of the poem, it's Crossing the Loch by Kathleen Jamie. I think it connects beautifully with the story, but but see what you think. Crossing the Loch. Remember how we rode toward the cottage on the sickle-shaped bay, 
That one night after the pub loosed us through its swinging doors and we pushed across the shingle till water lipped the sides as though the loch-mouthed boat. I forget who rowed. Our jokes hushed. The oars' splash, creak, and the spill of the loch reached long into the night. Out in the race I was scared. The cold shawl of breeze and hunched hills, what the water held of deadheads ticking nuclear hulls. Who rode and who kept their peace? Who hauled salt air and stars deep into their lungs were not reassured? And who first noticed the loch's phosphorescence so like a twittering nest washed from the rushes an astonished small boat of saints, we watched water shine on our fingers and oars, the magic dart of our bow wave. It was surely foolhardy, such a broad loch, a tide, but we live, and even have children to women and men we had yet to meet that night we set out, calling our own the sky and salt water, wounded hills, dark starred by blaberries, the glimmering anklets we wore in the shallows as we shipped oars and jumped to draw the boat safe high at the cottage shore. So this strikes me as the opposite of where our character in this story ends up, right? For me, it's that, shall we do it? Yes, let's just do it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a real exhilaration in it, in looking back at that memory, isn't there? Of having done something that you possibly wouldn't do now. And it doesn't matter. You know, for me, that word, I forget who rode, is really important because actually it didn't matter who was doing the pulling and who was doing the watching, that you were all so open to it and kind of in it, that it, you know, it was all kind of one group effort. But the memory of being scared you know, that idea that you find yourself on a loch on a boat in the middle of the night. And then, of course, I love phosphorescence. I have a particular love of we swum in phosphorescence uh, when we were down for the Wake Town Book Festival a couple of years ago. And it's a really f- remarkable phenomenon, I think. And until you've experienced it, it's hard to articulate what it's like. But I think even the phosphorescence has a little bit of anxiety and ominousness about it because of the reference to the deadheads and the ticking nuclear hulls that comes in the, the previous stanza that made me just sort of think, oh, is it proper phosphorescence or is there something going on there with the fact that there's those references? It made me wonder if it was based in Gearloch this poem, The Loch Was Gearloch, because that's where the nuclear base is at Faz Lane. And so when we got to the phosphorescence, I was thinking, oh, I hope it's proper, natural, nature-based phosphorescence and not something more ominous or sinister. It is sinister, this little bit of the poem where you're hoping that they're going to make it safely across and that you're feeling their fear. don't know. I mean, I think it's the voice of the adult in her looking back that it was surely foolhardy but we live, you know, and is that like, I wonder whether it's that, you know, the way that even at, you know, at, at my age, I'll look back and think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that as a young person, but I did and survived and it's fine. And partly I tell myself these stories, I don't often tell them out loud because I have teenagers in the house, but 
you know, to remind myself that people do do things that they maybe shouldn't do and they're fine. You know, more often than not, they're fine. And it's a good reminder for mothers of teenagers like me to remember that people do things. So for me, it was surely foolhardy as looking back, you know, but it's that, but, but we live and even we've gone on to have families and it's turned out fine. You know, phosphorescence is so twinkly. It's a bit like becoming a Disney princess, you know, literally every movement you make glitters, you know, that little sparkle on the TV around, I don't know whether it's the fairy godmother or something. It is literally like that. You run your hand through the water and it sparkles everywhere. So I can only imagine on a boat, you know, this small boat of saints. It feels like there's something, the, the magic in that has helped them survive this, what maybe was a bit, should have been a more treacherous journey. And that idea of having glimmering anklets is, is a beautiful image, that they're safe, but they've still got this sort of something halo. Yeah, I mean, I love that idea that in some way it's a sort of talisman and a protective shield over them. And that they're astonished. I love the use of astonished and the use of magic in that as well, just to create that idea of protection and safety, even though they were obviously worried. And it's such a contrast with, you know, the cold shawl of the breeze and the hunched hills and the nuclear hulls that are in the, the, the previous stanza. Bit like, you know, if you see shooting stars, a whole, well, even one, but a lot of them were, um, you know, if you ever seen a murmuration of starlings, you might have kind of darkness or this idea of kind of hunched hills or something quite severe in the nature around you. But then when you're exposed to something that seems nothing short of miraculous, it lifts everything else. It's, it just reminds you that of how completely out of control we are, you know, relative to the natural world around us. And I think there's something of that in there that you might as well go for it. And obviously the pub had kind of helped them with their inhibitions. But, you know, in some way, I think it's still like you might as well do it because there's phosphorescence and there's tides and there's so many things that we can't control in this world. And at least if you let yourself open to it, you might live to tell the tale. Which connects beautifully to, I think, the, the woman in the story who is looking for those signs and then somehow flips, I think, at the end of the story and it stops looking. For here, it's definitely, they weren't looking and gosh, there they were. And that seems to have changed their night. I don't know about their lives, but certainly changed their night. Yeah, I love the sketchiness of the memory. You know, it doesn't matter who's telling the story or, or really even the detail of the story. It's just that sense of the exhilaration of having done something slightly risky and gotten away with it. And then, you know, the, the beautiful ending of, a, you know, they get out and they've got this anklet of light around them, almost like they're just still being carried. And then they draw the boat safe at the shore of their cottage. You know, so we it's brought them home, you know, it's still okay. And I guess it would be a different poem or there'd be no poem at all if it had turned out differently. But, you know, actually, you know, looking at the story, looking at the poem as a story, they set out this way when they're sober, you know, and so they've come across the bay on a rowboat unless they left their car and rowed across instead. I don't know, because otherwise you'd have to have lifted the boat, which is a different poem for sure. <laughs> But yeah, if anybody has a different view of how they got there and what they were doing getting home, we'd love to hear it. But yeah, I love, and particularly the last thing I, I would point out is the last stanza. So there are four stanzas. The last stanza, they call the sky and the salt water their own, calling our own the sky and salt water. As if something about the magic of the phosphorescence, you know, as I was saying, maybe just shows you that there's a whole other part of the natural world, which would, it just puts you, your, your relative size in the place of things. But somehow that helps them feel like they can own it, you know, that they are part of it in a way as well. And there is a really strong sense of shift in that stanza. 
as well, to feeling in their place in nature, that the phosphorescence has given them that, whereas previously they felt a bit out of place, a bit out of kilter. Maybe they've just sobered up. <laughs> well, you would think if they'd sober up, they would be more scared. Yeah, that's true. That <laughs> but it true. feels like the phosphorescence somehow makes them feel like they're being carried, you know, that they're, yeah, that it's okay. No, I'm not sure that's true, but it's a lovely way of thinking about that, you know, and that it somehow carries this sort of small boat of saints back across the water. It's a beautiful image for sure. And one that's positive, I think, even though she's looking back at it. And as you said earlier, I love the connection between the poem and the story this week. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we probably, it was chosen thinking it's about water and it's about boats. But actually, I think it's about that, that idea of looking for signs or not looking for them, how they maybe come looking for you. And even in the story, she almost missed the rainbow, but she didn't miss it. She just almost missed it, which I suspect is the way it should be. So thank you so much to Catherine McFarlane and Kathleen Jamie for giving us such beautiful material to talk about this month. I really enjoyed uh, looking at them and chatting them through. And a brilliant headline into our uh, Push the Boat Out festival to come. Yeah, thanks for having us in your ears this month. And we'll be back again at the beginning of November for our next podcast. 